Welcome to the Ideal Investor Show. My name is Axel Meyerhofer and I'm the host of the Ideal Investor Show where we show you the path to early retirement. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the Ideal Investor Show. So glad that you could come and make time for us. So could you please introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us and our audience what you do, how they can learn from you and a little bit about how you got to where you are. Sure. Yeah. Like most of us, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my hand or a CFP certification after my name. Uh, I had to learn about money like all of us uh, the hard way. Uh, and I graduated from college, me and my wife. Uh, we had three private school degrees between us uh, when I graduated in 2008. Uh, a great year to be looking for work, by the way, Axel. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so we, we also came out of college with about $120,000 of student loan debt. Uh, in today's dollars, that'd be almost a quarter million dollars with inflation, uh, mm -hmm. with no real jobs, okay, no real plan to pay off the debt, no real focus toward money at all. And that was the start of our financial journey. Uh, I mean, talk about you know a, a great start in life. Uh, so that's kind of where things began for my wife and I. Uh, but I'll take us back even one further step. And this will be a story relevant, I think, to our conversation today. Uh, okay. I was like five years old when I had my first memory about money. Mm -hmm. And apparently I had collected a little tidy sum of cash in a paper bag, uh, allowance money, you know, chores around the house, stuff like that. Right. And I'd collected as much as $50, mm -hmm. which for me as a five-year-old, that was a good chunk of money. Um, and my mom, um, being a good mom, she took me to the bank to open up a savings account with that money. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I was skeptical about handing over my hard-earned cash to this absolute stranger in a suit and tie at the bank, thinking he could do better with my money than I could. Yeah. Uh, little did I know as a five-year-old how correct I was at that moment. I've been wrong about money a lot in my life, but I was dead on with my skepticism toward banks. And that is true right up till the present now. Um, you know, We're 11 years into a financial practice that we started uh, at, in the midst of the Great Recession. Uh, we started the practice and it's still going strong today. We've got hundreds of clients, almost a thousand clients all around the United States and some around the world. Uh, and our focus and our, our practice has been, has been uh, focused on specializing in helping people fire their banker and become their own source of financing. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you uh, for describing that. Actually, it, it brings me back a little bit because I was raised by my grandma because both my parents and in Germany where I came from uh, went to work, which was at the time relatively unusual in the in the mid 60s. But um, yeah, so the same thing happened in the German um, media, so to speak, I would say at the time, made it a little more juicy for parents to sell this idea to their kids by inventing something that they called the jeans savings book it was literally a little book i mean there was no digitization or stuff like that that looked even though it was made out of paper it looked like it was made out of jeans cloth which we all knew mm -hmm. and it was basically an annual tradition that you took your little jeans savings book to the bank to get your interest recorded now for the younger audience today 
there used to be times where there was actually lucrative mm -hmm. interest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned that I would like to touch on real quick, because I think sometimes, you know, these little um, nuggets are really, really important information uh, in this context. You said you had already developed a skepticism towards banking and bankers when you had to turn on uh, over your heart collected, I guess is probably the right way, yeah. uh, uh, funds or money at the time. Can you say a sentence or two? What, what gave you that skepticism? Well, it, it's literally the physical handing over of what I thought was, you know, a, an asset, you know, we can debate about whether dollars are really assets or not, but, you know, I was, I was going to hand over the green stuff, the coins right. and dollar bills over to a stranger, and he was going to put it somewhere out of my sight. And remember as a five-year-old, it's all concrete operational thinking at that point. You know, there's yeah. no esoteric ideas about savings accounts, uh, even savings books and checking accounts and online wasn't even a thing back then. Um, so yeah, for me, it was just the literal disbelief that he was going to hold my money over here at this strange building that I've never been before. He's going to hold all the money that I've, that I've collected. You're right about the word collected over these years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, I can come and get it anytime I want to. Are you sure? What if he spends it? You know, so there was that just very naive um, pur purview about bankers. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to realize now is that that is absolutely the truth. And here's, here's what I mean. Uh, FDIC insured banks. If I put $10,000, let's say, if I put $10,000 into a savings account today, out of that $10,000, the bank is only required to keep, are you ready for this? Uh, about a thousand bucks of my money on their books in their vault, so to speak. So what have they done with the other $9,000? I gave them 10 grand, right? Well, they, they've loaned out the other $9,000 and they only have a thousand of my money actually in their, in their vault. Now, let's stop and think about the whole process here. Because again, it's all one world. It's all one pool of money. You know, the ocean covers the earth. All the water of the world is just one pool of money. So if, if I put 10 grand into the bank and then, and I'm getting 0.1% interest for my deposit, right? Yeah, yeah. And then let's say you come behind me in line and you need a loan. How much, again, they're going to borrow, they're going to loan out the nine grand to you and how much interest are they going to charge you? Well, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 18%, yeah, but they're going to charge you a <laughs> much greater, right? Yeah, much greater than my 0.1% that I'm being paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that is an incredible, in fact, that's an infinite return. Right. An infinite return, because how much of the, of the bank's money did they have in that deal? None. Yeah, exactly. Now, okay, let's keep walking this story out. So Axel, let's say you have you now have a $9,000 loan from the bank. You got 9 grand. Where are you going to put that money before you spend it? In well, a bank account. Me, you know me, I would put it into a real estate deal, uh -huh. right? Well, sure, but even before that, before that, as soon as you get the bank loan, before oh, you yeah, buy yeah. your real estate, it's got to go into a bank account, right? Yeah, as short as possible, but yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And what do they do? Well, as soon as you put that money, that nine grand goes into a bank account, what are they going to do next? Well, they're going to hold 10% of your money. 900. So 9,000. Yeah, so yeah, that means 8,100 yeah. 8, gets loaned out to the guy behind you in line. Yeah, and yeah, this yeah, continues yeah. to happen as many as 18 times. They can multiply the money. Yeah. 
And this is how banks are regularly the, the wealthiest corporations on earth. In fact, there's a great book that I see some of the incredible reading that you do back there. I, I know some <laughs> of these books behind you there. That's awesome. Um, check out the book, mm-hmm. Debt the First 5,000 Years. It's by David Graeber. Great book, really thoughtful book about the history of banks and, and, gen- and more in general, uh, debt. Um, if debt has existed for 5,000 years, we can safely assume that banks are the most profitable, most long-lasting businesses on the face of the earth. I, I totally agree with that. That's why I said, you know, if I were to get those $9,000, that would be in there as short as possible. Mm-hmm. But there's also this other aspect, and maybe we are kind of tag teaming a little bit on this. What a lot of people don't really understand, and I think this is one really big thing why I believe financial education needs to increase substantially, should actually be taught as a, as a class in school or a continuous training in like as you take math and English and that kind of stuff, it should have financial education and money education. Because people, and I was the same way, I guess you were the same way when you bought your collected money and I did the same thing with my little jeans book savings book to the bank. But the point, one of the points is those $10,000 that you mentioned, the misperception to really see how can you make your money work for you, because it's not just the 9,000 that I would get if your bank loans 9,000 to me. The total 10,000 is a loan to the bank. It is in a sense, not really your 10,000 anymore. Mm -hmm. At the moment you turn it over and they put it into your account, all of it, it's a loan to the bank. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is, we've gotten so far, and I don't want to get political about it, but we've gotten so far that they don't even need you to sign anything except for the opening of the account. And then the assumption is you are totally aware that every time you put money into your bank account, and this is true savings and checking, now, yes, FDIC is there in the United States to basically secure you as the, as the person up to $250,000. In Europe, by the way, it's only 100,000 euros. But there's a difference between what would happen if the bank goes down, which if I hear you right, Mark, it's a very yeah. unlikely scenario that they would ever go down. So then, yeah, we don't want to have more than 250 in an account. But the realization that it's no longer your money, that is something that really struck me when I first started studying this stuff. That I always thought, and I don't know how you felt, you said you felt uncomfortable, but I would bet that you didn't think that you're literally giving it away as a law. Oh, yeah. It, it becomes um, the bank's liability to pay us back anytime yeah. we want it, um, which that anytime we want it part, that's why we're being given such pathetic interest right now, uh, that instant liquidity yeah. there. Yeah. And there's um, also the other component. And, and I want to kind of finish this part, but I think it's important when we talk about money to realize when you have your bank statement, anytime you go to an ATM machine and you say, tell me first, what's my balance? And it says $10,001, three years in because you got $1 in interest, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you say, okay, I want 9000 at that machine, let's assume the machine had that money, you wouldn't get it. Right. right? Yeah. Because the, the agreement that they keep funds available for you, if you want any, does not mean that they have to keep all your funds available at any time yeah. for the full amount. That's why they can legally say you get 300, 400, 500 a day, even though you have a balance of 10,000. If you say, I want my 10,000 in cash, right. 
most branch offices will tell you, sorry, Mark, we don't hold that much cash here. We have to send you to the main office somewhere in town if they even have one and on and on and on. So I think this sets a really good starting point, even though we talked about it for a little while, but I think it's important for people to understand this is a transaction. Mm-hmm. It's not where you right. put something to hold for you. It's a transaction. And then the question really becomes, what kind of other alternative transactions can you do that are much better for you? And maybe since you are an actual CFP and not like me, just somebody who is educating, but you have that certification. So if somebody said, wow, I never really understood this, I, I see now this is a transaction where I give somebody a loan. What else could I do that would be better for me? And maybe work with Mark on that. What, what would you say? Like I say, uh, and, and like, the, like the book by David Graeber suggests, banking will exist beyond the stock market. It will outlast. Um, I, I, I suggest uh, there's something called the Lindy effect, where as, right. for as long as something has existed, it will continue to exist. Mm-hmm. That's the concept of the Lindy effect. Uh, this is why some people have suggested that the landline phone will outlast the smartphone because it has it has been around for a hundred years. It's likely to outlast the smartphone. That's that's the Lindy effect. Whether that's true or not, who knows? But the idea there is banks and 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 more precisely, banking is a fundamental reality to human existence. Banking is it's a verb, just like parenting or. Um, you know, any, or or exercise. You know, the the concept of banking is something that will be a part of the human experience. I think for the le- for at least the next five thousand years, right? So we might as well participate actively in that experience. And my presumption as a certified financial planner is that we are all in the banking business, even if we just pay cash for things. We're already even if all we do is real estate which I recommend folks do. And I think folks need to work with you in terms of -of out-of-state turnkey properties. It's an incredible strategy. I've seen it work with our clients. So folks need to reach out to you regarding that. Um, But how we engage the banking world really matters. It matters more than what your 401k did last quarter. It matters more than how much interest you earned on your CD at at the bank last, last year. Banking is a function that you can take back control of. You know, so if if banking is a verb, well who is the noun? I feel like too many of us have outsourced the noun to the bank down the street. We're going to let that bank over there do our banking for us. Uh, the trouble is we're in their business. We are their product. And when we outsource our banking function, they rip us off. I mean, there's no other if ands or buts about it. You might be making, I'll tell a quick story. We had a, a doctor who made very good money. Uh, he, he was very proud of his 12% a year on his mutual funds inside of his 401k. Made a great income. But as we looked at his overall financial situation, we, we sat down, it was over Zoom. We do a full financial analysis with everyone we work with in, in an advisory role just to kind of figure out what the goals and concerns are for each person. And just like with him, um, we got to looking at his numbers and he was spending, he had two boats, he had two houses, he had three cars, he had a student loan. All of that debt amounted to over 30% of his income, his after-tax income going to service the banks. All of them were low interest debts, you know, 4%, 3%, 5%. Right, right, right. Yeah. But it was the volume that was killing him. It's just like eating, right? 
it's not the rate by which I eat food. It's the volume that'll make me fat. So it's the volume of interest that will kill us uh, if we're not careful. And the average American, according to the US Commerce Bureau, spends 37% of his or her income on servicing debt. 37%, Alex. Uh, Axel, that's like, that's like a third of our day. If, yeah. if we're looking at time as money, that's a third of our day. So, well, okay. So, yeah, right. If you think about it from yeah. a working perspective. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And Axel, throw, throw on taxes, and we might be halfway through before we're even working for ourselves, you know? Yeah, I think that's really an important point to make, Mark. We should always ask ourselves, why are we behaving this way? Mm, Yeah. And it goes in the ultimately to when when we're talking about financials, some of it is like you said, when with your opening story related to how have we been raised? What did our parents tell us is the right thing to do or showed us, literally showed us by taking us by the hand to the bank, what supposedly is the right thing to do. But it's also the cultural and social pressure, right? Like when you go to your doctor example, I would assume, I don't have proof, but I would assume that one of the driving factors is not just having fun because there's a ton of different ways you can have fun, but culturally and socially for decade after decade after decade, people have been conditioned to believe that success is shown through consumption. Right. Mm-hmm. If I have two cars or a better car or another new car or a jet ski and another boat and this thing and that thing and so forth, then the more I can demonstrate to the outside world that I'm massively consuming, whether I can afford it or not, then I'm showing my success. And when you go to, I'm sure we both know the millionaire next door is not normally that extrovert, shiny person that consumes like crazy. Right. And, and it's not to say, you know, you have to look in, in like, uh, you know, what's that show, you know, like undercover boss or something where you put on the ragged uh, outfits and stuff like that to see how they treat people that, that don't look the part. But the message in that is if we keep on going, and I would say this is true for both our audiences, our audience should be educated enough to say, I'm not more successful based on the fact how much stuff I'm consuming. Mm-hmm. Right. And besides the fact is it's, um, you know, through social media and other means, um, we are basically constantly conditioned to believe in short term instant gratification kind of stuff. That's one of the struggles when we have the conversation of um, how and why would be the out of state turnkey residential real estate strategy that we are proposing a good one. And people say, well, how long does it take? And I say, well, if your time freedom point is three, four, five, six thousand dollars a month then it takes eight to 12 years to get to that point. But then you have a life forever and for your kids and their kids, if, if you want to, without any worry anymore. So yeah. if you are 35, sorry, put in, um, put in eight years or 10 years even, then you're 45 and never have to work again. How, how attractive is that? But right. it feels long. It feels like almost unimaginably long. So coming back to the point I saw on your website when I did a little bit of studying that you say, there's a way you can be your own bank. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Yeah. And, and your, your comment reminds me of Gloria Steinem's quote. She says, uh, you know, rich people, rich people plan for four generations right. and poor people plan for Saturday night. <laughs> So given, given that eight years, 10 years, whatever is going to, you're going to blink and it's going to be gone. Uh, 
right. and to set up a four generations and more strategy. Um, goodness, I can't think of a better way to spend my limited days on this side of heaven, you know, uh, getting ready for something that my kids and their kids and their kids will talk about someday. That's, that's just a tremendous, tremendous strategy. So yeah, if we're already in the banking business and we're just sitting on the wrong side of the banker's desk, then I like to look at small hinges that swing big doors. Right. Yes, we can all fiddle with our rates of return. We can pick that stock or that crypto or whatever. Um, and it's good also, I think, to, to do that. But if we want to have a tremendously large impact on our financial life, the question is, how are we going to buy the stuff in our life? Everything from our turnkey rental properties to our kids' college education to our next car to the kitchen that needs to be remodeled. All that stuff, that's going to be millions of dollars that will pass through our hands. And it's either going to be paid in one of uh, two, three ways. You right. know, The average person either finances it with a bank and under which they are then under the thumb of that bank for the next however many three to 30 years, you know, on their interest schedule, on their payment schedule and more. Repoed, you know, repossessed if the person doesn't make those payments and more. Right. Um, or they, they lease it, which is even worse because then they have to give up whatever. They can't even sell what they had been renting the last several years. Or they save up and they think they're beating all the banks and they're saving up and paying cash. Now, what's the problem with paying cash for things like you know a car or a real estate deal? If you're paying cash, you're technically, you know, you're not in a loan, but truly you are financing it from your future. The truth is you finance everything you buy. Either you pay a bank interest or you pass up interest you could have earned on money had you not bought that car or whatever and left it invested instead. So in truth, the real price of buying a car with cash is huge. Like, you know, if you're buying a, a you know, if you're saving 350 bucks a month for your cars over your lifetime and you're buying cars every five, six years at 35 grand a year, let's say, that cost if you just put 350 bucks into a interest-bearing account, earning modest middle single-digit returns over your lifetime, you'd have lost out on $900,000 just because you paid cash for cars. Now, if you just ridden shotgun in the cars that your buddy drives, you'd have had $900,000 in your account at the end of life, right? So the the price of paying cash is we're stealing from our future self. Is that con- it's the concept of opportunity cost. Does that make sense, Axel? Yeah, totally, absolutely. And I think it's a good example to use cars because you have not even touched on the fact that you know the moment you paid cash or got a loan for that matter, this thing lost twenty or thirty percent. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Not even factoring that part of it in. Yeah. Now um, we can multiply this to vacations and real estate deals, and again, all the things that we were going to have to buy anyway. So I've discovered in my research as a certified financial planner, a strategy that lets us fire our banker and even beat paying cash. And it struck me when I found it, it was so simple. It was so old fashioned. I almost looked over it. Uh, Of all things in the financial universe, Axel, I didn't think I'd be talking about dividend paying whole life insurance here, but a whole life insurance policy, if it's designed correctly, can be designed to function like a bank. It's not an FDIC-insured bank account, thank goodness, Um, but it functions like a bank and we can use it to take back the banking function in our lives. Um, I'll I'll share very quickly how we can do that, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Okay. So a couple of very quick kind of ground rules. This is not whole life insurance that you've heard Dave Ramsey talk about. Okay. <laughs> uh, very, very different from that. Uh, this has uh, you know massive cash value right from the start. Uh, we're cutting the commissions and the death benefit down as much as we possibly can. Typically by about 70%, we cut down those expenses. So that floods the policy with something called cash value. Cash value is the, oh, if I could call it the living benefit. It's the money we can spend on this side of the grass. Right. And that's the fun time in my life to spend as well. I'm still alive in my opinion. So having a ton of money, liquid equity um, in my policy, in my cash value is, is, is great because that begins to be a source of money that I can then use. It's, right. it's uh, guaranteed to grow for me every single year outside of the stock market. Guaranteed. What's, you know, what's guaranteed about real estate? What's guaranteed about Wall Street? It's accessible to me at any point with no taxes due. That's also tremendous. Yeah, that's a huge important thing for people yeah. to understand. And I, I, if I may interject, mm -hmm. yeah. for anybody in my audience um, who is somewhat familiar or has heard about the concept of a home equity line of credit, mm -hmm. there are very strong similarities in that way, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. you're basically saying this thing is increasing in value while I'm basically sitting in it. There so you go. I, yeah. I can go and take some of that out. It's not considered income and you can do really cool stuff with it. Yeah. That's You actually bring up a great point and leads right to the next piece of this. Um, well, while it is a lot like a line of credit, um, let's say I've got $100,000 of cash value in my life insurance policy and, and I borrow against that life insurance cash value. I can do that. I have the right to. In fact, it's contractually guaranteed that I can always borrow. Unlike a HELOC, a bank can freeze that HELOC or even take it away from me, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a life insurance. Well, they certainly did in two thousand eight. Um, you know, so they froze those lines of credit or even took away those lines of credit. But with life insurance cash value, it is guaranteed that I can access that cash at any point during my lifetime via a loan or a withdrawal. And but just like a HELOC, my policy will continue to grow uninterrupted on the entire asset the full $100,000. So let's say I borrowed 30 grand out of my policy to buy a car. My policy, I, I'm driving my car around town, enjoying that, but I still have the increasing compound growth on all $100,000 as if I hadn't touched the money at all. Right. That is not unlike a, a home equity line of credit. You know, If I had $100,000 of equity uh, and I borrowed 30 grand against my house, my house doesn't care if I have a HELOC. It's, Zillow still counts my house, you know, whatever. Right. The only difference is the home is not guaranteed to grow. You know, see reference 2008, right? Yeah. Although I would have to say, you know, you could also say, look at the current inflation rate and how it's increasing, right? And even if it doesn't grow in real value, just by inflation, it would keep growing just at least at the inflation rate. I, I, I'm not saying it's the same. Don't get me wrong. And by the way, actually, I'm not just asking you to describe this. I'm doing this myself. So I want the audience to know this is a great thing. And the only thing in the example that Mark is using that I would change is I wouldn't buy a car. I would actually take right. the 30000 and say I buy an asset that is actually producing income yes. instead of basically burning the money, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So so far, I, 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 car, I don't know what we're going to call that. <laughs> I completely agree. The, <laughs> the car is the simplest example, because, yeah. but, but then you get really interesting results. Now think about it this way. If we're going to buy, let's say, a real estate property, an out-of-state turnkey property, 
And let's say we want to buy it. Let's just keep it again, very simple. And let's say we had $250,000 in our cash value life insurance policy. And we just use that to pay all cash for a deal. Okay. Out of state. What has happened there? Now we have a real estate property giving us cash flow. And maybe we're doing cool things like cost segregation and bonus depreciation. Right. We've got appreciation in the market, hopefully. Not, not guaranteed, but hopefully. And let's say that's 4% every year, maybe even better. And at the same time, even though we've borrowed against our life insurance, all of that $250,000 is still earning capital guaranteed plus dividends inside of our cash value, inside of our life insurance, as if we hadn't touched the money. So yeah, we just absolutely. turned one asset into two assets and we increased your market return, didn't we? Without any yeah, additional absolutely. risk. And if you really want to blow people's mind, what I, you know, if they work with you and me together, we would get your help to get this all set up that way. And then they come to me and I would say, well, if you have really $250,000, instead of buying one or let's mm -hmm. say maybe two properties, I would say, let's buy 10. Yes. An 80 20 mm -hmm. deal where your investment part on each of the properties is only 20%. The bank pays 80%, totally normal, mm -hmm. no mortgage insurance, no mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you buy 10, right, with let's say uh, 30,000 down, so you have 1.5 million that came out of these 250,000 that is still there, that is mm -hmm. still increasing. And the 1.5 million is the new asset value that you have on which, let's just say, for a simple calculation, you make four or 5% increase in value just because of inflation and a few other things. Now, even though you only have 20% in that deal and 80% is from the bank, mm -hmm. by law, you earn all the benefit, all the, all the gain, right? So the tenants in your properties are paying for the 80% that you borrowed from the bank, but the 4%, it's like what, $60,000 or something like that. Yeah. You make that as income. And that is why people oftentimes when they say, okay, well, how much can I make in real estate? It's only three, four, 5%. Well, forget, you forget normally when you come to me, or I'm sure Mark, when they come to you, we would never recommend to buy these properties cash. We Correct. would say, yeah. get yourself a reasonable loan, 2080 at 4%, 4.5% interest that is easily paid with cash flow from your tenant plus maintenance, plus property management, all of that stuff is included. You're still going to make a few hundred dollars on each one of those properties. But more importantly, on the whole portfolio from that one deal, those $60,000 are completely your benefit, the whole of it. You don't have to give anything to the bank, right? Because yeah. you basically have, and I hope you agree that that is a proper use of the term, increase massively the velocity of your money. Velocity of money is the, is a great, perfect term for that, Axel. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you just gave a number there, 60,000 increase divided by your $250,000 contribution to those, to those uh, properties. That's a 24% annualized yield right there. Yeah, and that's compounded. Even, yeah, we haven't even looked at um, tax benefits, um, you yeah. know, Appreciate yeah. any of those kind of things, the cash flow that comes out of these 1.5 million from the rent and yep. all of that. So when people they ask me, you know, like, well, what can I expect to be the return? And I said, when you take it all in, it's not a good deal if you don't make at least 20%. And they look at me and say, I thought it's real estate. How can that be? 
Mm-hmm. Right now, you have to go and, and understand a little bit and work with uh, either with somebody like you, Mark, or come and learn about our system and our mentoring program. But fundamentally, um, there is, and this goes back to the point about why we're doing these shows and why we bring great guests like you on, is to really help to educate people who say, I want to do more with my money. And it's it's a little sad to me, actually, that we have to go all the way back, like when you and I were little and went to the bank to make a deposit of $100. But that's where you really need to break the paradigm and say, you yeah. have to think about it differently. And and we, I always feel like both of us and others in our in our professions, we are at least as much educators in this fundamental stuff as we are showing a particular strategy like ours or yours um, that help people in a specific way to accomplish their goals. That's it. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, what we're doing is we're we're now we're now thinking about this in terms of function. Like where we put our money will make it act differently. You know, I don't I don't know who might be listening to this. I don't know what your goals or dreams or hopes or concerns are for the future. But I can tell you that where you put your money matters because where you keep your money makes it do different things. If it's in a 401k, it's going to act different than if it's in a hedge fund or an annuity or a real estate trust or you know savings account. It's all buckets where your money acts differently. So the key question for almost everyone we ask and talk with is, what do you want your money doing for you? What yeah, characteristics, exactly. what attributes? I, I said a little bit different and, and maybe and you feel free to, to steal it is how does it look when you are the boss of your money? That's great. Yeah. Because if you are the boss of your money, you tell your money what it's supposed to do for you. Right. I and, like that. Yeah. And, 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 and when we in phraseology, maybe I'm a little sensitive because I didn't grow up with English as my first language. But the point for why I'm pointing this out is really to say most of how we describe it is we're putting it somewhere, we're giving it to somebody, we're buying, meaning also we're getting something in return. If we were able to adopt a philosophy where we can say, you need to be the boss of your money, you need to tell it what to do and find the best ways to make it as mm-hmm. efficient yep. as it can possibly be for you. So you, like most people who have a job, would say, well, it always looks to me that I do all the work and the boss is doing very little. Well, <laughs> if you're the boss, that's your role. And so finding the most efficient way to make your money work for you, I think is really, really important. Yep. Um, I think we, we encapsulated that pretty well. I would hope that people learned a lot from that. Are you ready for, for a couple of quick questions that we always like to ask at the end? Well, sure. And, and uh, if there's time enough, I'd be happy to give an example of what we've just described with real numbers uh, in two minutes or less, if you think that'd be a good use of time. I give you three. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here's a, here's a real life example. Uh, a gentleman, he was 45 uh, when we started working with him. He felt like he could contribute uh, $32,000 a year to a whole life policy designed for massive cash accumulation. Now, right there, that stops a lot of people in their tracks and they say, well, how in the heck who would, who would be stupid enough to put 32 grand a year into a whole life policy? Well, you know, we have such fast accumulation that this feels more like a, like a really souped up savings account earning 500 times what banks are paying these days in terms of yield. So middle single digit returns, four to 6% tax-free. So after 10 years, he's got over $400,000 of cash value ready to use and access for any reason. And in that 11th year, 
he borrows against his life insurance and he stops paying any more into the policy. So he's funded it for 10 years and then he's done. And he's right. got 400 grand of cash value in the policy. And by the way, a $2.1 million death benefit, nothing to sneeze at there. Um, okay. So in the 11th year, he borrows $350,000 and he buys a bunch of real estate with that money. At the same time, he starts repaying that loan over five years, okay, with rent money that he's getting from tenants and, mm. and more. At the same time, his policy grows from $400,000 to $515,900. So that's an increase of basically, you know, $115,000. Mm-hmm. On its own, even though he had borrowed basically everything out of the policy, right? That's almost like an infinite return. Sounds familiar, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, and the the policy itself, they they charge some interest when you borrow against these policies. There was about thirty eight grand of interest charged over the entire five year period. So we have to factor that in, Axel. When we when we borrow against life insurance, there is an interest rate. But again, if I'm going to pay thirty eight grand. And on a guaranteed basis, get back $115,000. How many times would you do that deal? You know, yeah, all the time. And actually, <laughs> I always advise people take the portion of the cash flow that covers the interest and just pay it right away. So you yeah. don't really accumulate anything. And then, you know, it's just flat yep. the number that you borrowed and nothing yeah. else. Yeah. And, and that worked out to about a 1.9% interest APR for that gentleman. Yep. Now, we're not even looking at the uh, number of real estate properties that he got, right. what the appreciation was, and that's where you come in. Uh, but it's it's a lot like, I mean, the work you do and the work I do, it's almost like nitro and glycerin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they just they go better together. You know, it's like it's like uh, Batman and Robin, Thelma and Louise. There's just a great combination yeah. when you can put two assets together to make an even better result for your clients. Uh, so yeah, I you know, love that's rockets, just right? So it's fuel and oxidizer. You know? oh, yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great. Yes, that's right. So you know, uh, where else can we get that money doing two things at once? I can't find a 401k that can do that. I can't find you know savings accounts, certainly not. Uh, so do what banks are doing with their money. Right. Don't do what they're telling you to do with your money. Very good. Cool. So I, I, we used a little bit of our time up on this one. So I, I limited to one question, but most of the time it really has like interesting responses. So I want to ask you, if you had a time machine, you can go forward or backward, where would you go and why? Well, that's a, I saw that question in your notes and I've been thinking about it. And while I probably could come up with two dozen answers, yeah, um, totally. just to keep it relevant to, to this conversation, <laughs> Um, you know, the, these, these policies, these whole life insurance policies have been around since before the American constitution was written. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, was a co-owner in one of the first mutual life insurance companies in the United States. It would be so cool to meet Benjamin Franklin. I think he has one of the best entrepreneur hearts, best minds. Uh, and so I would love to go back, meet, talk with, understand, uh, his philosophy, his strategy, Kind of what he saw. I mean, he. I don't know if you know this, but he um, he deposited several different uh, uh, deposits of ten grand into an interest-bearing account mm-hmm. that could not be opened. Uh, it was for the city of Philadelphia, and the first one was opened a hundred years after his death. The next one was opened two hundred years after his death, and they were tens, hundreds of millions of dollars had accumulated based on those two deposits that he made all those many years ago. That is long-range thinking. That is somebody thinking, you know, uh, four generations into the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for describing that. Yeah, that would be a totally new show, uh, piggybacking on what we just discussed on compound interest, right? Because that is actually a very cool phenomenon too, to say, um, how does that actually look like with the compound interest? So um, that's really cool. Thank you for, for picking that particular place in history. So um, for all the cool stuff that you shared, um, how get people hold of you the best way if they want to first see you know how do i get the whole life insurance policy without having to pay the first two years just to satisfy an agent and stuff like that yeah that's a great way to put it and that's exactly right um, most whole life insurance out there is designed for commissions first which is a shame as a certified financial planner i don't think i can honestly recommend that type uh, for most people if you're focused on cash accumulation that you just really need to work with some i'd say the the, the best way you can look into this is look up the phrase bank on yourself. That's the the credentialed, trademarked uh, phrase that helps us distinguish this type of whole life insurance from you know, the old-fashioned type that Dave Ramsey loves to hate on. Right. Uh, so you know, look up the words bank on yourself. You can find our podcast wherever you're listening to this show. You can listen to Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Right. And uh, we've got over 200 episodes where you can learn more about this strategy. Or if you want to just chat with me for 15 minutes, Go to Not Your Average Financial Podcast and click on Request a Meeting right there, uh, notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com, and there's a button that says Request a Meeting. Happy to chat. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Ideal Investor Show. More info and the links we mentioned during the show are in the show notes, or you can go to our website at idealwealthgrower.com and find them there. Sign up for the Apple Podcast link the rss feed the spotify link and if you like to talk to me please sign up for a strategy call at idealwealthgrower.com so hopefully you want to share what you learned with your network and bring more people in we are really eager to hear your comments and until next time be well stay safe and ciao